If it was an army, was it involved in a war? Very much a loaded term because wars seem to cast legitimacy on violent action. But can we talk about what the IRAs, in plural, were involved in as wars? Yeah, I think you can. I think they were involved in a war against against British control in Ireland from 1919 to 21. Certainly, they were involved in a war against the Free State. I don't think you can call it anything else. It's certainly resistance to the establishment of the Free State from 22 to 23. And after 1969, the IRA is involved in a war in Northern Ireland. It becomes quite a limited war by maybe the late 70s. Certainly in the early 1970s, you're looking at a very widespread campaign of resistance to the Northern Ireland state and to Britain, which, to put it in context, in recent years, the number of British soldiers killed in Afghanistan has been rising. But it took a long time for it to reach 100. In 1972, over 100 British soldiers were killed in that year alone in Northern Ireland. And most of them weren't killed in large numbers in big bomb attacks. They were killed in gun battles or in sniping attacks. It gives you some idea of the extent of the violence that year and of the large numbers of people who were involved. The context of that conflict changed as well by the mid-1970s. But I certainly think that you can say the IRA has been involved in wars. It's also been involved in much more limited campaigns and it's been involved in all kinds of different forms of both political activity and violence over 80, 90 year period. But it certainly has been involved in war and it sees itself as an army, certainly deserves that title at various stages in its existence. Going back to the War of Independence, I mean the British Army and the British government said it wasn't a war, it was a, a murder gang. In the Civil War you've got Kevin O'Higgins saying it's not a war, it's armed crime. Mm-hmm. The Troubles, the similar kind of um, line let's say. Yeah where the people opposed to the IRA have said that it's not a war. Why do you think it's important to control this, this idea or this message of if it's a war or not? Because a legitimate army does wage a war. It doesn't wage a campaign of terrorism or it, it isn't a murder gang. Mm-hmm. And I mean, the reason that the British called it a murder gang was to try and deny any legitimacy to what the IRA was fighting for in the eyes of the world. A huge part of, of the Republican movement's aim in 1920-21 was to present Ireland's case to the world and try and gain recognition as an actually existing and republic and part of that had to be that there was an army in the field that was waging a war that wasn't a murder gang now many of the tactics they used would have been presented by the british as those of terrorists but from their own point of view they were fighting a war and they were fighting the only kind of war that they could given the the abilities they had again against the free state the free state moves very quickly to try and delegitimize the ira the use of the term irregulars the refusal to acknowledge that this organization has anything to do with the one which had been in existence, you know, six months before. So I think it's important for governments to try and delegitimise the IRA, and just as it's important for the IRA to try and argue that, no, there is um, a real reason for what they're doing. They aren't simply engaged in some form of a criminal conspiracy. Obviously, in the, in the modern conflict, part of the biggest battle of ideas was the battle by the British government at various stages to present what was happening as simply a terrorist campaign that had minimal public support that depended only on intimidation and gangsterism and the way Republicans res- responded in the long term was through prison protest and through hunger strike and, and you know did prove that there was a degree of popular support and you had a very few examples of ordinary criminals or gangsters who were prepared to both try and win popular support and also who will go on hunger strike or stage prison protests to the ultimate end as hunger strikers did. I'm going to move on from that to a very closely related thing which is how can we categorise the armed actions of the IRA over the years? What we used to think of in the war of independence especially was ambushes like the Kilmichael ambush, the Crossbarry ambush. Now recent research has suggested that that's not really typical of what went on in the war of independence. 
you wonder why 80, 90 years on that we're suddenly finding out all these things about the War of Independence. But one that a lot of IRA volunteers didn't see major military action, that an awful lot of the activities they were engaged in, while they were important in terms of the overall campaign, weren't deadly. You know, road trenching, stealing mail to try and use for intelligence purposes, low-level sabotage, preparations for ambushes which didn't happen. That's something that you could look at right throughout the whole history of the IRA, that a lot of things that are planned don't ever come off the way they're supposed to. Ambushes that are aborted, ambushes that go off half-cocked, lack of arms and ammunition, lack of local confidence, the importance of a local leader who's prepared to push his, his unit into action as opposed to areas where people are relatively happy to, to let things be a bit more calm and relaxed. We can probably examine in more detail in the longer run how much pressure from British forces has to do with that. Does that work or is it counterproductive? I mean, people always assume that the tactics of the Black and Tans and the Auxiliaries are absolutely counterproductive for them. I mean, we, we could probably examine more and see really are they because there's some evidence that IRA volunteers don't embark on activities because they don't want their local locality to be terrorised. I mean, all those things are important in terms of the, the, the day-to-day life of the IRA. But certainly, a lot of the people killed in the War of Independence are killed at close range, are killed in circumstances which aren't the classic ambush, not the classic flying column. And I think that makes perfect sense in a lot of the ways, because the IRA are fighting a much better equipped and a larger enemy, and they're also subject to pressure from informers and pressure from what they perceive all sorts of enemies around them. So I think it makes sense. The only reason why people are surprised by it is because there was a very romantic idea about the Tan War. And it makes sense that when you're writing about that in the 1940s or when you're talking about that kind of war and lots of people are still around who were involved in it, that you wouldn't necessarily dwell on the fact that three or four people were killed locally who were suspected of being informers, rather than the fact that there'd been an ambush in which you'd manage to inflict some casualties on, on the black and tans and auxiliaries. It just is something, I think, that people wanted to play down to a certain extent. It was always likely to be examined, and one of the reasons why it's been examined now is that in the light, I think, of the r- more recent conflict, it is quite illustrative of how concepts of the IRA change over time, because, again, big question in the 70s and 80s would have been, and you see it all the time in press coverage and you see it all the time in statements by Fianna Fáil and Fine Gael politicians and, and by journalists and sometimes by historians that this type of thing didn't happen in the 20s. Then the IRA fought a relatively clean fight against their military enemies. They didn't. Uh, they wouldn't have kidnapped people and shot them and, and hidden the bodies or they wouldn't have killed women, for example. And when you look back at the War of Independence, you see, well, they did all those things. A recent narrative of the War of Independence, not except the way everyone is that it was a kind of civil war that the IRA fought against its enemies its civilian enemies as well as its military enemies That's, it fought against Redmondites, Unionists ex-soldiers, mm-hmm. what do you make of that? In every war of liberation or in every independence struggle you very rarely find a case where there isn't local support for the occupying power and in the Irish context there certainly were people who supported the British connection, not just classically the Unionists but also others who were uneasy about the need to break away. 
certainly the need to use violence to break away. I don't think civil war is the right term because in a lot of cases the IRA's conflicts with their enemies were political conflicts. So you have clashes between Republicans and Redmondites at political rallies and you have fights between them and you have you know, quite serious violence in the various election campaigns and, and the Republicans often come off the worst. If you look at the battles in Belfast where mm-hmm. the Hibernians mm-hmm. and, and not just them but you know, classically the women who work in the linen mills who are big supporters of Joe Devlin attack Sinn Féin canvassers and you do have intranationalist conflict which I think is quite significant. Even look at how the Home Rule vote holds up at a local level. The party doesn't disappear in the way that you would think by the, the first-past-the-post system. The 1918 election being fought under PR, you'd have had all sorts of candidates being elected. But I don't think it's a civil war as so much as conflict between nationalists that in most cases isn't deadly and that in most cases and other exceptions in Monaghan and elsewhere, the IRA doesn't kill its nationalist enemies. What you have more is that, particularly as the war with the British escalates, both where the IRA suffers setbacks and also where it fears that it's under pressure, you have this desire to root out sources of British intelligence or punish people who you think have aided the British. And again, people, there's lots of controversy about why certain categories seem to be targeted more than others, and that's far from unresolved. But certainly, I wouldn't categorise that as civil war. But I do think it's not unusual in the context of other conflicts that that happens as well the differences from place to place where in some areas the IRA aren't very ruthless at all they don't really either against the British or against more local enemies use very ruthless tactics Mm -hmm. in some places they are obviously quite ruthless in the civil war which immediately followed the war of independence the IRA has pretty much always got a bad press in the anti-treaty IRA in the Mm -hmm. civil war Um, one thing that's come out recently in various people's work is that the IRA of the Civil War was not necessarily as ruthless as its enemies in the Free State uh, government. Mm-hmm. Would, would you say that's a fair comment? Yeah, I'd say it is a fair comment. I mean, the IRA in the Civil War um, doesn't at all really adopt in any way as ruthless um, a campaign as they had done against the British. And I know that there's a document in the book from Liam Lynch where in November 1922 he's arguing that they've attempted to more or less fight a conventional war against the Free State. The Free State has begun to adopt all sorts of of vicious tactics against the IRA and the IRA needs to respond. He more or less says we need to respond in the way that we had against the British. Now they do adopt widespread sabotage and that does cause a lot of disruption and a lot of economic damage. And actually that Sabotage does seem to really, really, in terms of some of the free state government like Kevin O'Higgins, they do see that as kind of Bolshevism, as anarchism, as something that shows how lawless the anti-treatyites are. But it's not deadly in terms of they don't adopt a campaign of assassination against the Civic Guard, for example, the newly you know set up uh, police. They do threaten to kill politicians who vote for the executions and in the end they do kill Sean Hales and wound another TD but it's not extended really beyond that where they do kill civilians it's often in as part of sabotage rather than deliberate Kevin O'Higgins' father is killed and, and the son of a TD is killed but I don't think they were directed assassinations as such whereas on the free state side you do see both at government level and at local level a much more ruthless policy adopted Sometimes by former IRA members of course Well I mean I think one of the the interesting things about the history of the IRA is that one is that often the people who are entrusted to take on their former comrades are those who've been most active. You don't get the Trusilleers to crush the anti-treaty IRA. 
you get the hard men to do it. Mm. In Todd Andrews' book, Man of No, of no Property, he uses the term the hard men from Belfast and Dublin were sent down to Kerry. Again, not quite true because the Dublin guards actually recruited Kerry men when they were in Kerry as well. Um, but I suppose in part psychologically the anti-treatyites would often have, have talked about the Free State Army being composed of British mercenaries and ex-British soldiers and there certainly were a lot of ex-British servicemen in it. But I think the ones who were responsible for the worst atrocities were people who'd been through, often been through 1916, certainly through the War of Independence, often former members of the squad in Dublin, certainly men who had experience of close quarter killing and who weren't in any way prepared to show any kind of mercy to what they saw as people who were now betraying the state that had been founded. And in, in the 1930s, when Frank Gallagher, the Republican propagandist, is in correspondence with Joe McGarrity. Joe McGarrity is still 1936-37 arguing that the, the IRA are legitimate, the struggle needs to go on. Frank Gallagher is a supporter of Fianna Fáil. And Frank Gallagher writes a letter to him. He says, you seem to think that this is a great idea, that war is a great idea in Ireland. And he refers to the recent killing in 1936 of the retired British Admiral in Cove. And he's, in my view, running up to some man's door and shooting him down isn't great. And he says, I've seen this. I saw where the men who worshipped the gun in 1920, 21 ended up. They were the ones who crushed the Republic. And it is, I think it's, it's an interesting idea because... A lot of the people who were hardline militaries, certainly the people around Collins, I don't know to what extent they ever developed a Republican ideology, but they were very loyal to Collins, very loyal to the idea of what they saw as the IRA being a military force. And they did then, during the Civil War, quite ruthlessly crush Republican opposition. And again, you can see right throughout history that it's not the raw recruits usually who are expected to do things like this. It's, the, it's always somebody who's got a reputation as a hard man or a, or a gunman or as an operator mm-hmm. who's brought out to, to lay down the line. Yeah, I think that's an excellent point actually where sometimes a lot is made of the British soldiers in the Free State Army where it's most bitter. I think the Civil War is really like a Republican feud. Yeah, I mean to some extent it is but I mean it, it's brought much broader it's obviously brought, because there's thousands, course, thousands yeah. more people involved and, and both the anti-treaty IRA and the Free State Army had lots of young men who hadn't served probably too young to serve in the, in the War of Independence. Mm-hmm. And what the Free State Army does a lot is that they do recruit a lot of young men from towns like Clonmel and Nina, where, where lots of young men would have joined the British Army historically. There's a new Irish army in town, and they joined that in, in 1922. And again, their commitment to the ideas behind the Free State would have been, I think, fairly limited as well. It was an Irish army, and they joined it. And in a lot of cases, I think, if you look at the combat in the Civil War, in most places after the autumn of 1922, it's fairly limited. So a lot of those men wouldn't have ever been engaged in major conflict. But then you have pockets, particularly in Kerry and elsewhere, and in Dublin as well, to a lesser extent, where you do have conflict going right on into, the, yeah. into 1923. Wexford, strangely enough. Yeah, also in Wexford, and in places that hadn't, in been, places that hadn't been very active in, in the War of Independence.